0: Hello, lovely listeners. This feels like just the right time to re-release an old favorite, my interview with novelist Tracy Chevalier, recorded back when this podcast was still in single digits. And yes, I spoke with Tracy's husband, Jonathan Drory, just last week in the episode about plants, sustainable living, and being multi-passionate. Here's hoping you enjoy this blast from the past. This is my original interview with novelist Tracy Chevalier. Hello and welcome to Also in Pink, the podcast all about lifestyle design, how we live, the clothes we choose, and how we organize our space. I'm your host, Alexandria Lawrence, a certified Conmari consultant and personal stylist. I'm here to guide you on your journey to live a happy, fulfilled life. Every Tuesday, you'll get new insight on what it means to live well, plus actionable tips. Redefine what's possible and create your ideal life. Our guest today is novelist Tracy Chevalier, best known for her international bestseller, Girl with a Pearl Earring. She's published nine other novels, mainly historical fiction. Tracy grew up in Washington DC and moved to London many years ago where she lives with her husband, son and cat. And Tracy has been an important part of my London life, so this is a special extended episode. We talk about things big and small, from storytelling essentials to life and lipstick. So Tracy, welcome. What an absolute pleasure to have you on the show and thank you so much for being here.
1: It's great to be here to hear you and see you. It's been a long time.
0: It has been a long time and to give listeners a bit of background, you are one of the first people I met when I came to London 17 years ago. We have a mutual friend, shout out to Lindsay Young, And we share the same alma mater, Oberlin College in Ohio.
1: And I was looking for somebody to help me with some administration,
0: and you came along. Yes, I did. And so I've watched your son grow up, and your kitten grow into a cat, and it's been lovely to have you as part of my London life.
1: Yeah, and me too. It's been amazing to watch your transition from musician to bookmaker, jewelry maker, the developer, and now a podcaster. This is really amazing. I'm really proud of you because I think a lot of times we go through this life thinking that we have to do one thing. We're on one track and actually there are a lot of tracks. It's so sad that if you feel you're on one track, you can't try out all these other things that you might be as interested in or like more or be good at. And it's important to be open-minded. And I think that you're the perfect example of that.
0: Oh, well, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. And I do remember years ago, actually, when I was at Oberlin, hearing someone, I think it was a German woman who was kind of a teaching assistant. She's maybe 10 years older than I was. And she had done all of her training and teaching and sort of admitted that it wasn't something she wanted to do but she said that's what she trained in and so that's what she felt like she had to do and even at that time that just made me really sad i thought surely there's always possibility for change
1: of course and in fact i was on a train once sitting across from a man who was probably in his 70s and we got chatting and i don't know what i was doing at the time maybe i was in publishing maybe it was even before that i might have still been a student and he, he said that he was a swimming coach And I looked surprised and he said, yeah, I became a swimming coach about two years ago after having had a whole life of doing whatever it was he did in accountancy or whatever. And he said, you should never limit yourself. You can change all during your life. Most people are going to change their careers two to three times at least. And that's a good thing, not a bad thing. So I always thought, yep, swimming coach in my 70s, that's what I'm going (laughs) to (laughs) do.
0: Exactly. It's never too late to uh, try something new. Yeah, We also are both Americans living in London. What's drawn you to the city and kept you here for so many years? When I
1: was at Oberlin College, I was an English major. And as a junior, I came to London for a semester to study and fell in love with the city. And then when I graduated a couple of years later, I, I didn't quite know what I wanted to do with my life. I thought I wanted to go into publishing, which in the States means... moved to New York. And I was from Washington, DC, which is a much calmer, smaller town compared to New York, the big bad New York of the 1980s. And so I had loved London as a student. And two friends and I decided to go back and work here for six months. And then they went back after six months and I stayed. And it wasn't part of the big plan. I think a lot of What I've learned about life is that life is pretty accidental. I mean, you can make things happen, but a lot of it is just serendipitous. And there's a joy in that. But I think I've had a long love affair with London because it's so international. I think I also, oddly enough, rather like being the outsider. I mean, there are a lot of Americans in London, but nonetheless, I'm ever so slightly on the sidelines of the culture here. Maybe not so much anymore, but I certainly felt like that when I was first here. And it gave me an opportunity to look at what was going on more objectively. The flip side of that is that people would meet me and say, When are you going back? You know, they think I'm a tourist. And for a long time, I wasn't really sure if I was going to stay or if I was going to go back to the States. And I have a friend who is a Canadian. I was working by that time in a publishing job. She was visiting and she said, you don't have any books, or you have a few (laughs) books around, given that you read so much. This is a little surprising, Tracy. And I said, oh, well, you know, books are really expensive to ship back to the States. And I don't buy books. I get them out of the library, I borrow them somehow. And she said, what, you've been here five years? When are you gonna buy a bookcase and commit to staying? And then I was complaining to her that I felt like it was very hard to get to know people here, to make British friends. And she said, well, you haven't committed to living here. Maybe you just need to buy that bookcase. Because otherwise, they're not going to put the effort into getting to know you. And I think the next day I went out and bought a bookcase, started buying books, and now I have thousands of books.
0: I think that's lovely. And especially that act of buying a bookcase and saying, okay, yes, I've committed to this place. I also enjoy being an outsider in London, although it... Feels less so like that. But I I remember, you know, when I was studying, people talking about, oh, when are you going home, you know, just to visit? And by home, they meant California, which even at that time, I'm not sure I considered home.
1: Does London feel like home to you now?
0: Oh, it does completely. I, I can't imagine living anywhere else, really.
1: I have dual citizenship, so I have an American passport and a British passport. But when people say, do you feel British? I answer, I don't feel British, but I definitely am a Londoner. That's probably what has shaped me more than anything else.
0: And I completely understand that. I think that's the perfect way of putting it, really. I would never call myself British, but I I feel so at home here. And just thinking of having an affinity with London, I don't know if I've ever told you this, But when I was a kid, I had one of those light-up globes by my bed. And for some reason, even then, I had the UK as the place that was facing out for as long as I can remember. So I don't know if it was my mom used to read stories to me, like Jane Austen and Dickens and very UK-centric things. So I don't know if that slightly brainwashed me, but yeah. Well you know how they have flat maps
1: on a wall. Depending upon the company they choose what country is going to be in the center of the map. So a British company will make the the UK the center and an American company will make America the center. I'm assuming like a Chinese company would make China the center. You chose your center before you had even gone there probably.
0: That's very true and before I knew anything about it really. I'm sorry there's a little bit of cat
1: noise but she will be quiet in a minute.
0: Oh, it all adds to the charm. Yes. <laughs> Definitely. So Tracy, girl with a pearl earring certainly put you on the map and you became a household name, I would say. <laughs> well, <laughs> in certain circles anyway. <laughs> but um, yeah, well, you became well-known. And is there a certain anonymity to being a writer that still allows you to go about your daily life without... Really being recognized on the street, or yeah, do you feel like even if you have become well known, you can still be anonymous?
1: Yes, I think if you're going to be well known, being a writer is a really great way to have that recognition, but without people actually recognizing you. Very rarely do I walk down the street and people look at me. And if you think about the writers who you know what they look like, most of us could say, uh, J.K. Rowling, Margaret Atwood. Salman Rushdie. They have no anonymity, but the rest of us do. And that is great. And it's only really when I say my name. So I I was in Salisbury Cathedral the other day. And when I had to say my name for the ticket, she she said, the Tracy Chevalier. And I laughed. And I said, yes. And I, I almost wanted to tell her, actually, I always thought the name Tracy Chevalier was unique. But then, of course, the internet comes along and you realize that no names are unique. And somebody sent me an article they had found on the Albany Journal or something years ago. One Tracy Chevalier, 24, was arrested in a crack house And then a Tracy Chevalier got in touch with me from Texas and said, hey, we have the same name. And I sent her the article and I said, yeah, look what we've been up to. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the name is familiar to people who are readers, but most of the time I walk down the street and none of that. Nobody notices. And that's good. I keep it that way.
0: That's lovely. It sounds like the best of both worlds, really. And what would you say is the most essential ingredient in storytelling? How do you keep your readers engaged and committed to reading through to the end?
1: Wow, it's a, it's a good question. And I think if we writers all knew the answer to that, we would all write bestsellers every time. Girl with a Pearl Earring came out over 20 years ago. And when it first had its success, I had this tendency to go, oh, little old me, it was just an accident, and it's Vermeer, the painter who painted the painting, I'm just lucky that I'm riding on his coattails, and it took me years to actually get to the point where I could say, yeah, actually I wrote a good book. And that's why the book has been successful. It's not just that it has an amazing painting on the cover, but I think it's given me time to think about what works in that novel that has set it apart from other books, from my other books, from other people's. And I think what it is, it's a marriage of a good story and the way it's told. So it's what you say and the way you say it. And the two of them intertwine to make the book more than the sum of its parts. So when I first decided to write the book, on the day I started research, I found out I was pregnant and I was going to give birth like eight months later. So it forced me to make some decisions about how I was going to tell the story. I thought, okay, I don't have much time. So it's going to be straightforward, short, one point of view and I'm going to write it in a spare way and focused way, the way Vermeer paints his paintings. So those decisions meant that the words on the page and the sentences, the way they're structured, and the images I use are all quite deliberately pushing along the story that I chose to tell. And the two of them support each other, make each other more than the some other parts. And that doesn't happen that much in books. So I think that that is really what I'm always aiming to do. I'm not sure I've done it with all of my other novels, but I know what I'm aiming. And that's what good storytelling is, what you say and the way you say it. And I think it's a lesson that actually can be applied to a lot of things. It can be applied to what you wear, to how you go about in the world, up to your job. It's not just about what you do, but how you do it. So it's a lesson that I feel like I've learned over a long period of time.
0: Yes, what you say and the way you say it. You couldn't put it better than that, really. And in terms of writing a best-selling novel, do you ever have a sense of what your audience, your readers will like? Are there ever any inklings that something could be a hit?
1: I have a really hard time working out if I've written something good or not, you you know, and I think part of it is that a novel takes two or three years to write and you've been so immersed in that world that you can't really think of anything else. People often ask me what my favorite novel is of the ones I've written, and I usually say it's the one that I'm working on because you have to support it, it has to be important to you. But it's only when the dust settles a few years later that you, you have more perspective on it. So when I'm finished writing a book and it's in front of me, and I press send and send it off to my agent and my editor, I honestly have no idea if it's any good or not. I'm just totally like, who knows? And I wait for that email or phone call from them to say thumbs up or thumbs down. And they've always said thumbs up, but I I never expect it. I never assume it. And they could just as easily say, Tracy, you know, I've read it and I don't think it really works. And I'd be like, oh, okay. Or they could say, oh, this is going to be the next big hit. And <laughs> I, I would accept both of those equally because I don't have the perspective. I think often we lack perspective on our own lives, and particularly something that we've created, and sometimes you just need the time to step back and go, okay.
0: That makes so much sense, that idea of perspective. So Tracy, your writing process is quite immersive, and I haven't been in your office for several years now, but I believe you have your own cabinet of curiosities, as it were, so cubby holes with assorted items to represent your various books. Yeah, so you create quite a, a physical connection to what you're doing. Tell me more about that world.
1: Well, it's interesting, because my study is a little room in the house, very small. And several years ago, I had a interior designer design a desk and redo the room a little bit. She was designing it and she was saying we well, could do this and do that. And she said, how about some little cubby holes up here above you? Because and you can put little things in it. And I just hadn't thought of that. And I said, sure. And we used this beautiful cherry wood. You know, one cubbyhole is full of fossils that I collected for the novel I was writing, Remarkable Creatures. There's a book called The Edge of the Orchard I wrote, and it's about apples and redwoods. And there are all these pictures of trees in it and a bit of bark from a redwood and some different apple type things. And then there's one corner that's all girl with a pearl earring kitsch stuff. So I have a girl in the <laughs> pearl earring miffy doll and chapstick and a little compact and just stuff people have sent me. So I, I love looking up at it and going, ah, oh, you're surrounded with your writing life and reminders of your writing life. And then beyond that on the walls on either side of me, I paste up quotes and photographs and drawings from whatever I'm working on at the time. So at the moment I'm writing a novel about Venetian glass, particularly beads, glass beads. And I have pictures, I have a map of Venice up. I have some Italian Renaissance paintings of Venice, particularly an artist I really love called Carpaccio, worked in the late 15th century. And a lot of my characters resemble characters in his paintings. So if I'm writing about my main characters, Ursula or her lover, Antonio, I look up and see other there he is, there she is. So it really helps me because every day I have to recreate a world that I'm writing about. So I go in and I think, okay, I'm in 15th century Venice. What's the weather like? What do my characters look like? What are they doing? How are the boats moving? All of those questions. And I have all of this around me to kind of support me and get me back into that world. So I really love my office space. At the end of the day, I take what I've written. I usually have a notebook I've been writing in and I go and sit at my computer and I've got all this stuff around me and then I type it into the computer. So I do this writing by hand and also computer together. and. The space is really important to me where I am.
0: Yes, that makes so much sense. And being able to create a really immersive world for your readers too, I imagine that helps to live it yourself, which you also have done by taking on some artsy skills. What have you done most recently?
1: My latest book, A Single Thread, I did some needlepoint. It's called Canvas Embroidery in the book. The heroine, Violet Speedwell, she lives in the 1930s and she's trying to create a new life for herself in Winchester and ends up joining this embroidery group or making cushions and kneelers for Winchester Cathedral. She makes a spectacles case for her mother for her birthday, which her mother is horrible, doesn't like it. And in order to be able to write about it accurately, I made the case myself with the same colors that Violet had in mind. And then she makes a needle case, which you hold your needles in for her niece, Marjorie, and I made that as well. And I really love doing it partly because it helps me to write more accurately about whatever the process is. Whether it's painting in Girl of the Pearl Earring, I took a painting class, or quilting in The Last Runaway, or fossil hunting in Remarkable Creatures about the fossil hunter Mary Anning. I like to do the things my characters do so that I can write about them with some sort of authority. But the other thing is I love making stuff because it uses a different part of my brain from what I normally use. So normally I'm very verbal, obviously, because I talk a lot. I read a lot, I write a lot. It's all about the words. Making a quilt is not about words, it's visual, and it's mechanical. And it's three dimensional, and it's physical, it's not all in my mind. And I love that about it. When the lockdown happened in March, it was a very difficult time, I think, for everybody in different ways. But I found one of the most effective things I did for my own self-care was to start a quilt. And I started working on that. It just gave me solace at night when it was so grim in April. I think April was a really difficult month in the UK. There was a lot of death. There were a lot of sirens around us. We live between two hospitals that both had big COVID wards. And so you're always hearing sirens and It was all a bit grim and I would sit at night and listen to classical music and I would just sit on the sofa making this quilt and there's just beautiful colors developing in my hands and that really helped a lot. One of the reasons I like doing quilting and other things is that I don't actually have to be good at it. You know I'm a writer who's expected to write good novels now But nobody expects me to make a good quilt now. And it's, (laughs) ah, the pressure is off. (laughs) Thank you. I could just be good enough. I can be good enough. But that doesn't matter because um, I'm doing it for the process as much as anything else. And just taking that pressure off of having to be good is also mentally soothing
0: definitely and taking the pressure off of having to be good is a wonderful excuse for everyone to expand what they do and try creative things outside of their own profession so you have a lovely update on your website from may that's five months ago now about writing during the pandemic and your thoughts about your new novel which as you say is about venetian glass beads and spanning the 15th to 21st centuries. And in May, you talked about shifting focus to the contemporary section of your novel as it felt out of step to write about Murano in 1490. So has your focus changed in the past few months? Um, What are you working on now?
1: During the lockdown, I, I had been in the middle of the 15th century and it just felt strange and irrelevant to write about glass in 15th century Venice, when we had this craziness happening around us. But the book is going to span several centuries. And I knew that there was going to be a section that would be in the contemporary time. And I had been planning to set it in November 2019, which is when there were what they called the aqua alta, these really terrible floods in Venice. And I thought that's the worst thing that could happen to Venice. So I need to write about it. (laughs) Little did I know. (laughs) And so I was thinking, well, I don't feel like writing about 15th century Venice. What should I do? And then I thought, well, maybe you could just set your character, or your heroine, write about her during this time in April, 2020. And I did, and I never do that with a book. Usually I start at the beginning and I write it all the way through. And then I redraft. The best feeling for readers reader is when you're reading and you just wanna keep turning the pages, wanting to find out what has happened. And you, you feel like the writer is just a couple pages ahead of you writing. And in order to get that feeling, I have to write straight to the end, that flow. Not every writer does that. I once met Audrey Niffenegger, who wrote The Time Traveler's Wife, which is a book that's all chopped up. She writes like that. She writes what she feels like writing that day. So she'll write a bit, she'll write a bit, she'll write a bit, and then she'll glue them all together. It works for her. It could never work for me. So I'm looking for the flow, and so I would normally never skip several hundred pages ahead and go to April 2020. But for my own well-being, I did it. And actually, it was very useful writing about the pandemic in the middle of it. And what has been so interesting, too, is that several months later, I have reread that section and thought, yeah, we've moved on from there. As I was writing that section in April 2020, I didn't think to myself, Oh, this is going to absolutely stay in the book. I just thought, Tracy, just write it. You might throw it away in a year. You're getting something out of yourself, and that's that's good. But now, after I wrote that section, I felt able in the summer to move back. I finished the 15th century, and now I'm in the 16th century. I started looking into the plague in Venice and discovered they had many plagues, many, and they were used to it. So. We all know about the Black Death in 1348-49, that's when it sort of first appeared. It recurred for centuries. So I discovered that in Venice, there were three major plagues in 1348, 1575, and 1630. And the first one, half of the population died, second one, a third of the population died, and the third one, a fourth of the population. And between those huge ones, were a lot of smaller ones. They were constantly being quarantined and locked down. They had track and trace. They're doing all the things that we've done. When there was a plague, they would hire somebody from each neighborhood to keep track of all of the new cases each day and the deaths each day, just like what we're doing. And I was astonished by this. And so I thought, okay, maybe I am gonna actually use this a little more And so the next section I'm writing about is about the plague in 1575. It comes into the story in a big way. And you know, in two years, maybe nobody wants to read about this. I might find that's the case, but we'll see. Because I'm a historical novelist, I'm looking for what we're going through now and how that gets echoed in the past. And when you understand the past better, when you have a better sense of it, it puts into context what you're going through now. And I think that's what I'm trying to do.
0: That's fascinating. I'll be looking forward to seeing the results. So Tracy, would you say that you've had a lockdown realization that's changed your perspective or your priorities?
1: I think I've had a lot of realizations. I think the key is going to be to try to put them into play. I keep a physical diary of my meetings of events I have to do and stuff like that. And everything got canceled from mid-March all the way through this year almost. It felt really good. And I realized, I thought how pre-pandemic, anytime I'd look in my diary and I happened to have a completely free day where I didn't have any meetings at all, no phone calls, no meetings, no going any place, I would go, yay, unstructured time. And you know, isn't it kind of obvious that if you like it that much, you should be doing more of it? So I think that I am going to try very hard to say no more. I thought that I said no pretty well, quite a lot, because I get asked to do a lot of things. But I think there are a lot of little fiddly things that we end up filling our days with that we don't need to. And I'm gonna really try hard. Not to agree to things if I'm not that sure I want to do them. My husband John, has a really wonderful mantra. Like if somebody asks you to do something, like say an event, he said, "Ask if you're gonna earn, learn, or do good. So earn if you need the money and it pays in a way that you feel compensates you, then do it. If you want to learn something from the experience, get something out of the experience, fine, then do it. Or if you want to do good, if you want to do something for charity or help somebody who needs help, that's fine. But if it's not going to fulfill one of those things, don't do it. And I thought, yes, you've got to do that more. And it's not just work can also be social things, it can be receptions you get asked to or launches or parties that you just don't really fancy going to. Well, just don't! Don't! So I'm trying really hard to be more mindful about what I say yes to. That's a more positive way of looking at it. And also to try to keep those days free, try to make the diary free. So maybe that just means blocking off a day where I don't put any meetings scheduled into it. If I like those free days so much, I should create them. I can actually actively create them. It's not that difficult to do it. I really love unstructured time and I need to start feeling a little less guilty about it. Now we have all been home at night over and over and over again, very samey some of our nights during the lockdown but there was something to be said for like not having any plans. It was so lovely at night. I just said, "Oh, well, should we watch television or quilt or read or go for a walk? We can decide right now, we can be spontaneous. And all these things, I think we're not very spontaneous at the moment, or we haven't been. And I think I'd like to be more spontaneous and not feel guilty about having a day off where I don't do any work. I think one of the dangers of my job which is a wonderful job, is that because I work from home and because I'm always thinking about the novel or often, I don't know how to switch off. It's all kind of blurred into one. And that means that even on weekends, I might do a little bit of work. And we're all like that. We'll all say, oh, I'll just check my email. And I think I'm gonna really try harder to have a day a week where I haven't planned anything and I don't have to feel guilty about it. I don't have to work on that day, and I should just enjoy it. And maybe it means I sit around on this comfy sofa all day and read a book, and there's no judgment there. I need to stop judging myself so
0: much. Yes, I think that's something we can all take from this as well, not feeling guilty about actually choosing how we want to spend our time. Imagine if you lived the life you really want. You know, your dream life. Have you ever taken time to picture what it would look like? I mean, what it would really look like? We're not talking about the life you feel you should have, but, deep down, the life you secretly want. Your ideal life. Maybe you already have a vision. You wake up, after a good night's sleep, on the most comfortable mattress ever with pillows that support your head just the way you like. You go to your organised closet and choose colourful unique clothes that fit you and make you feel good. Then pad through a clean, warm, uncluttered home to the kitchen. Your refrigerator offers up the most delicious, healthy options for breakfast. And you have a day of unstructured time stretching ahead of you to do with as you like, but... That's never going to happen, right? Hmm. Wouldn't it be nice to take a step back, sweep aside all your worries, and imagine that's where I come in? I'm your host, Alexandria Lawrence, and I've developed an exclusive questionnaire for the Also in Pink community to help you create a vision of your ideal life. Simply join the Also in Pink email list and you'll get instant access to our Ideal Lifestyle Vision questionnaire. Go on then. Make a cup of your favourite tea or whatever floats your boat. Go to allstonepink.com and click start now. Redefine what's possible and create your ideal life. Unstructured time. That's something I wanted to ask you about. And it seems like writing novels is the ultimate exercise in time management and productivity if you have 2 or 3 years maybe to hopefully finish something so how much of a schedule do you think you need to make for yourself versus that creative time and space to imagine which i imagine is is very important too
1: it's a constant struggle for me even though i've written 10 novels and i'm working on my 11th it's still after all that time i still think I'm not disciplined enough, you should really be writing more, you should do this faster, you should do this better. I, I have, you know, somebody on my shoulder, in my ear, always saying these things. And, and I think that surprises people to hear it sometimes because they think, well, you've been at this for 25 years, Trace, you really ought to be able to <laughs> knock them out now. And, and actually, that's not the case. And I think I've learned to accept that it's part of the process. It has its highs and lows, and it's kind of like when you're reading a novel. There are some bits that you really linger over and reread, and then there are some bits that you skip through, you just read really quickly. And it's the same with the writing and the time of the writing. It's not always smooth and disciplined. Sometimes it's a little crazed, and sometimes it's just boring. I try not to let it be too boring because I think if I'm bored writing this, the reader's probably gonna be bored reading it. Occasionally, I just have to take myself in hand and say, come on, Trace, you're just procrastinating too much. And I had to do a little bit of that during the pandemic because (laughs) I think one of the things about the lockdown is we could use it as an excuse to say, well, i got to read the news, I've got to keep up with things, or I'm distracted, or I'm depressed, or totally legitimate stuff. And I was sort of legitimately saying, Tracy, you're distracted, so just go with it. It's okay. But there comes a point when I thought, it's not really okay to keep on not writing for months because there's a pandemic on. I think we need to learn to live with it. So I think I've learned to live with it.
0: And writing seems like a challenging profession to get started in when you're a complete unknown. Do you have any advice for writers just getting started? How, how do you keep motivated until you reach your goals, until you have an audience?
1: I think one of the things you have to crack early on is that you're writing for other people, not just for yourself. And you don't really know whether a book or a story works until somebody else reads it. So I would say get yourself an audience pretty early. If that means taking a course, it doesn't have to be an MA in creative writing like what I did. You know, you could just get a group of like-minded people together who are all writing and share writing with each other and do constructive criticism with each other. So it's not just like, oh, that's a nice story. You say, you know, that part works well. I think you could work on this a bit more. It gives you deadlines. It gives you a built-in critical audience. And those are things you're going to need as you're going forward into the publishing world, which is all about audience. And it's all about what works and doesn't work. So I think that it's crucial to get some sort of structure rather than just saying, oh, I'll just write this because I, I have a really good story in me, so I'm just going to tell it. Well, yes, but how are you going to do that? So you have to set yourself a schedule that means consistently writing you know, every Sunday night or every morning at 6 a.m. to try to create some sort of schedule that works for you. And, and a lot of that means finding an audience and somebody to critique. So it, it needs some sort of structure. I wouldn't worry too much if you're at the beginning of this about the publisher, the agent. I think sometimes it's hard writing and it's easier to think, well, I think I'll go online and look up what agents I could send this to when it's done. Do that when it's done. (laughs) Don't worry about the whole commercial side of this yet. Worry about telling the best story you can and telling it in a good way as i said earlier it's it's about what you say and how you say it so make sure you're focusing on the how as well as the what i think most people have an idea that's pretty good but the writing lets them down so you really need to concentrate on the how as well but you also don't want to do it to the other extreme which is what sometimes poets can do is it's all about the how (laughs) it's about how they tell it and then it's like what is in there what are you trying to say so what and how very important
0: great advice and get yourself that audience and feedback early on i think that relates to any creative thing that you do so Yes, and you've hinted at um, various little style rules that you have for yourself. So my curiosity is piqued to learn more about that.
1: You know, I'm 57 and I have been through many different phases of my life in terms of what I wear, what makeup I wear, how much I wear, how little I wear, whether I'm appearing for a public event, whether I'm appearing on television, all of that stuff. And I know what works for me. I suddenly started realizing I have rules. So 95% of the time wear black shoes because I just think color looks stupid on my feet. (laughs) And I have big feet. I'm a size 42 so it's limited. Most uh, brands just go up to 41. So if I go into a shoe shop, everybody else can try on anything and I can try on about 5% of the stuff. I tend to wear a lot of black, like I wear black trousers or skirt, black shoes, often a black jacket, but the color comes on the chest with the blouses or tops or with accessories, with scarves, with earrings. and I'm very curious about having the colors done. It's funny because you've talked about having your colors done in your podcast before, and I always thought of it as a kind of it was a a really big thing in the 1980s, and people draped scarves over. And there was something (laughs) that seemed slightly naff about it. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of relieved to say that you said in a podcast earlier that you were a little skeptical about it too, because I was totally skeptical, but. As you and the director from the Camden Arts Center in your previous podcast said, it's obvious when you think about it that putting two colors together would affect the two colors. If you're interested in color, of course, color is going to make a difference. So I'm really curious to try that. I also think that it's really important to get a good haircut and color. If you get a cheap haircut, it looks cheap. So if you're going to spend any money on anything, That's the thing to go for.
0: I think that is key. And I've learned so much more about that through doing this color analysis training as well. And so many people miss this a little bit, especially if you choose to go blonde, if you choose that very kind of white ashy blonde and you have a warm skin tone it can drain you completely and it's interesting with the drapes you can see how that comes across by having these blocks of color across your chest so so i think yes if you do just choose to have a pop of color your chest is a great place because if you have a color that suits you that's where it reflects up onto your face and makes the most difference but it will be fascinating to yeah do your colors when we can meet in person i, I can't wait
1: yes and i often read articles saying red lipstick is perfect anybody can wear it and it just gives you a great pop of color and i cannot be getting on with red lipstick it just doesn't work for me and i think that's a really important lesson is that you can hear this from brands from ads from articles from your friends from all kinds of people saying you should do this but actually you kind of know best because you see yourself more than anybody else does. You see yourself in the mirror, you're trying to work out what you're going to do. And I know that red lipstick doesn't work on me. There's no point in buying it anymore because it isn't going to work. And I just have to figure out what does. And that is important. Ah, okay. One more. In your podcast before somebody was asking about makeup for older women, and you mentioned the eyelash curler, which is true. It does work. A lot of older women, their eyelashes get stubby as part of menopause. So there's a product called Revital Lash. That's what's done this. Nice. And you paint it on. It takes three months to have any sort of effect at all. So you have to keep doing it. But I've had friends who have said, God, Tracy, your eyelashes are amazing. And they try Revital Lash and they try it for a month and it doesn't do anything. So they stop. So you keep up with it. You have to do it for at least three months. And then suddenly they grow much more and you get your lower lashes back and your upper lashes get longer. I used to put it on every night. Now I do it every other night just
0: to top it up. Oh, top tip, I love that. And would you say that that you have a vision for what your ideal life looks like? Have you ever thought about that before?
1: I'm pretty close to it but there's always room for improvement. One of the amazing things about being a writer is that it doesn't feel like a job. The word job can often be used as a dirty word a little bit. It's a negative word. I don't divide my life into work and play. I'm incredibly lucky that way, because for me, it's all one. Sometimes that can be a little bit exhausting. I have a hard time switching off. So I need that unscheduled time, the unstructured time. I need to build that in to the structure of my life a little bit more, but mostly I'm just so happy that I get to make up stories all the time and create a world within my world, whether it's 15th century Venice or 17th century Holland or 19th century England. I, I can get in there every day or whenever I want. and I. Can do it when I'm driving the car or cooking dinner. It's not always in the morning when I'm sitting at my desk. And that seems like an ideal life to me because I'm not resentful of the time I need to spend, quote unquote, working. I'm just doing it. I'm just doing what I love. And it permeates most parts of my life. So that is an ideal for me already that I think I've got there. The disadvantages of it are that sometimes it can take over. I have to work on that to find a a way to make the boundaries that then allow me to have unstructured time.
0: Sure. And do you have a top tip for living well, something my listeners can take away with them and apply in their own lives?
1: I have had such joy from having a life that doesn't have that division between work and play. And I do recommend it. Either it's a change of attitude towards work, because we spend a lot of our time working. You wanna make sure it's something that you really, really enjoy. And that kind of means breaking down those barriers so that you become the work more. But also with a caveat that you don't want it to completely take over your life. Somebody asked me once, what are your hobbies? I think we had run out of conversation. And I said, "What are your hobbies?" And it's like uh what do you mean? I don't divide my life into hobbies and everything else. You know, it's just all one. I suppose you could call quilting a hobby, but I was learning to quilt in order to write about it, and I still read about quilts and I I use quilts on my bed and it it's just like all part of the big pot and i think that more holistic approach makes for a happier life
0: lovely i love that and for anyone who loves your books and would like to get in touch what's your perfect sort of fan mail any tips for someone (laughs) tempted to reach out and you can be as specific as you like so length format do you prefer email social media or a letter in the post
1: Oh gosh, I don't get letters in the post very much anymore. I'm very happy to be contacted any way you like. I have a website, uh, tchevalier.com, and you can email me that way. People also go on Instagram and they write comments under pictures, and I have exchanges that way, and on Twitter as well. So I'm happy to have it always, and that's kind of one of the wonderful things that's the explosion of social media, it has its disadvantages in that it can take over your life a little bit, but it also means it's much easier to get in touch with people if you want to in a very casual, happy way. I particularly like Instagram because it's a happy place for me. It's, It's very visual. People are kind on it. Twitter can be a little bit um, like you're in a boxing ring and I just step back from that as much as I can, but Instagram's very happy. So however people want to get in those three ways is great.
0: And has anyone ever gotten in touch in such a delightful, memorable way that you've kept in contact with them?
1: A couple of fans became friends, which is really unusual. I'm I'm quite private, but a wonderful American woman who lived in London near me named Sue. Sadly, she died a few years ago, but she wrote to me and then she kept writing and I wrote back and I ended up going to her book club and then we became friends. We go to exhibitions and she had wonderful garden and that doesn't happen very often, but she was really memorable and lovely, very generous and happy person. I, I think the most unusual person to contact me was years ago, so it was almost 20 years ago, after Girl of the Pearl Earring came out, a man who is a descendant of Vermeer, the painter, contacted me. He emailed me and he said, just wanted to let you know that the family's happy with your book. (laughs) It's like, oh (laughs) my God. (laughs) Phew. And it was really interesting because people don't know what Vermeer looked like. He never painted self portraits like the way Rembrandt did. But this guy, he wrote and sent a photo of himself in profile. He said, if you look at this particular Vermeer painting where there's a man in profile, it's the same profile. And it was true, it was. And he said, that's the Vermeer nose. So now you know, and that's probably what Vermeer looked like. I love that, I love that. We haven't really kept in touch since, but it was wonderful to have that exchange. And also to know I hadn't offended his family in any way. You know, Vermeer lived in the 1600s, so I sort of figured 400 years on, I can get away (laughs) with it.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's a great story. Well, it's that time we've reached the finale, and so I have a round of quick-fire questions to finish off the show.
1: You ready? So don't overthink it, Tracy. Just answer, okay.
0: Exactly. So first of all, what's your most treasured possession? And of course, no judgment. It's so
1: hard to sort of hone in on one thing, but I would say probably an ichthyosaur fossil. The shoulder bone of an ichthyosaur was a fossil I found on the beach near Lyme Regis when I was researching this novel about Mary Anning, the fossil hunter. And I had a cold. It was August. The beach was full of people. And it just seemed like I was grumpy and unlikely to find anything. <laughs> and I was sort of looking around Ugh, there's not going to be any fossils here whoa, what's that? And I picked it up (laughs) and it was—it fits perfectly in my hand. And it's so obviously bone shaped. And I just was really thrilled with it. And I think it's because I can hold it very easily. It's in one of those cubby holes above my desk. And I often get it down and just hold it while I'm writing. And I think it's the sort of thing I doubt that I could ever find anything like that again. So I think that's what I love.
0: How wonderful and a proper treasure that you found yourself. And what's your favorite article of clothing or accessory in your current wardrobe? So,
1: a friend of mine gave me a scarf last Christmas, and it was from a company called Wallace and Sewell, who are really known for textile weaves. And when I opened it, it's a lot of yellow and light blue. It's a beautiful scarf, but I thought, gosh, I would never choose this for myself. Am I gonna wear this? Well, I basically did not take it off all winter. I just felt so stylish when I was wearing it. And I wore it to Paris, and I just felt like I could stand amongst the Parisian women who all know how to wear (laughs) scarves well and hold my head high. And that, to me, was a great lesson in maybe letting somebody else figure out what might look good on you, because you may not think it does, but actually it does.
0: Very true. And holding your own in Paris. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) I know Parisian women can be scary, I imagine. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And where do you go to get inspired?
1: I go to art galleries a lot. And that was one of the things I really missed during lockdown, was getting to see art. One of the things that made me feel the most normal, it was in July when I finally got to go to an art gallery again. And it was just the space of it, the quiet, somebody else's vision of some part of the world, some way of looking at life. It really, it feeds me. And so I try to go whenever I can to see art.
0: And what's one book or resource you'd recommend for everyone?
1: There's a resource that all of us, almost all of us, have that we don't use very much, and that is cookbooks. Loads of cookbooks. And, you know, especially during the lockdown where you're not eating out, you're cooking every night, it's very easy to make the same thing over and over again. And I have a lot of cookbooks, and then I realize I buy it, I make two or three recipes from it. I've read somewhere that you're lucky if you find two recipes in a cookbook that you use over and over again, but most of the other ones you don't use at all. And I think it can give you a lot of inspiration about what to cook differently, what to use differently, what spices to use. It's an untapped resource that we all have. I think that we should look at our cookbooks more and be inspired.
0: Absolutely, and do you have a favorite recipe at the moment?
1: Oh, there's a great Anna Jones recipe. I can't remember the name of the cookbook, but it's a pasta dish with capers, avocado, lemon zest, and basil. I would never have thought to use avocado in a pasta dish. And it's so simple. It takes 10 minutes to make. Oh, and garlic, too. And it's delicious. Simple to make. And always wonderful. So that's my top tip.
0: Oh, yeah. It's made me hungry already. (laughs) (laughs) And what would you say you're grateful for? It's a very KonMari question for you.
1: I think I'm grateful for something I spoke about before, which is the work I do in the world doesn't feel like work to me. It feels like pure pleasure and joy.
0: Can't get much better than that and tracy finally what do you love most about life
1: i'm just constantly amazed that life exists i know it sounds strange but i pinch myself every day especially when i'm looking at a beautiful blue sky or sunlight or a cat the fact that we exist is truly remarkable and i don't think that we appreciate that enough so i am in awe of life itself and i want to experience it as much as i can
0: it is a great privilege for all of us to be here right now
1: yes it is it is
0: and there's such potential for really wonderful things in this world even if it doesn't always feel like it
1: and we must hold on to that i think particularly in these times it's so true
0: oh brilliant well, Tracy, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time, and it's lovely to see and speak with you again.
1: Thank you, Alexandra. It's been a real pleasure for me, too, to reconnect and to talk about all of these big and small things. Life and lipstick. <laughs> Beautifully said.
0: <laughs> oh, thank you. Pleasure. Well, hope you enjoyed that chat with novelist Tracy Chevalier. Be sure to check out the links to her website and social media in the show notes. Why not drop her a line? She's equally happy with email, social media, and letters in the post. So, here are some key takeaways from our conversation. Tracy's essential ingredients in storytelling are what you say and the way you say it. It's a marriage of a good story and the way it's told. Yes, we often lack perspective on our own lives, particularly with something that we've created. So get in front of an audience as soon as you can. Remember, you're writing, you're creating for other people, not just yourself. And dare to say no. The pandemic has given us all time to reflect and consider. How do you want to live? going forward? Do you, like Tracy, crave unstructured time? Next time you're asked to do something, pause and consider. Would you earn, learn, or do good? And it's important to remember how lucky we are, right here, right now. Always hold on to what's good and positive in your life. That's our show then, thank you so much for listening. I'm Alexandria and this is Also in Pink, the podcast all about lifestyle design. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to Also in Pink wherever you get your podcasts. And the absolute best way to show your support is to write a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. This really helps more than anything to promote the show. And of course, tell all your friends. Thank you so much for your support. Until next time, have a wonderful week. Redefine what's possible and create your ideal life.